We are diving back into Mark's gospel this morning. We're going to be picking up at verse 21, and we're just, we're just going to dive right, right in and uh, really picking up where we left off. This, uh, this narrative that we're going to read this morning uh, is really a, uh, forms a, the second part of a unit here in chapter 5. So we're going to take a quick peek back, and then we'll set us up for going forward. And, and notice the, the settings. Settings are very important in narratives, and uh, it's important here in this chapter 5. If you look back at verse 1, uh, you recall that Jesus uh, went across to the east side of the, of the Sea of Galilee, um, and there he encountered a demoniac, a, a man. Uh, this was a Gentile area, and we begin to see a lot of things that are not really clean and tidy, demons and tombs and pigs. For a Jew, that's, that would is very unclean. And then it's likely a very Roman area because the Jews don't eat pigs, but the Romans probably do, and Jews do not like Romans. And so we've got this, this very dirty, uh, unwelcoming, unclean context where the Messiah is making his way with his good news. And Jesus sets this demonic man uh, um, free from oppression. And we, we were served so well by Ebby uh, preaching this, this text. And we saw Jesus' all power, his authority to deliver those in darkness into his light. And now Jesus is moving back to the other side of the lake. He moves to the west side over likely around Capernaum. This is a Jewish area. And things are much more supposed to be much more tidy, religiously clean. But as far as that goes, we will see it's, it's beyond clean and beyond tidy. And so Jesus encounters singularly the demonic man on the other side. And now he steps off the boat and he encounters an entire crowd. News is spreading about who he is. And so we're going to read our text today. It's a longer chunk in, in some pieces and kind of ch- chunk it through. And so we're going to start with verse 21 through 24, and then we'll pray. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Join me as we we pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on the word. Father, we thank you that we get to gather as your people and we get to hear your word uh, come to us. And I, I, I would ask this morning, Lord, that we would encounter you, Jesus, anew this morning. Would you come by your spirit and would you... Would you allow our hearts, our, our minds to, to be touched by your spirit in a, in a deep way? And we would, we would leave having encountered you, Jesus, through your word, by your spirit this morning in a real way. We ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus steps off the boat, crowd swarms around him, and we meet this first character, this man named Jairus. And who is he? Well, he says he is a ruler of the synagogue, so the local uh, worshiping community there. He was not a priest. He, he wasn't a rabbi. He was 
some sort of maybe president, like a head of the, the synagogue. And so he had all these responsibilities within that synagogue. He probably helped plan some of the Sabbath worship. He maybe read scripture. Maybe he organized and oversaw building maintenance. But he was well known. He was a man of authority, likely wealthy. He wasn't a nobody. People knew who this man was. But notice the posture of this important ruling named religious leader. He runs up to Jesus and he falls at his feet. He falls at his feet. You maybe are thinking about our first part in chapter 5, the demoniac man falling at Jesus' feet. We see a pattern here. He falls at Jesus' feet, this posture of reverence, and he's begging out of desperation for Jesus to come to his daughter who's at the point of death, that, that term is like, it, it's at, she's at death's door. And Jesus, what we saw in our last section, he spoke, he immediately did something. But here, we, no, we notice as we move through our text, he, he just goes with him. He doesn't speak a word yet. And we're going to see this emphasis on touch. He employs Jesus to come and lay hands on his daughter. If only Jesus would touch his daughter, he has faith that she would be healed. And without any sort of word or interaction from Jesus, he leaves and he goes with her. So they're heading out towards his home, hopes for his daughter to be healed, and the crowd is thick. I don't know how many people were there and how thick it was, but I, my, my mind just goes to the state fair, I don't know, think Labor Day weekend. This is pre-COVID, obviously. And uh, you'd have like 250,000 people. If you go to the state fair and you think, you know what, I want to get to the other side of the fair because there's that one corn dog stand that we want to go. The crowd means it's going to be slow. The crowd means there's going to be disruptions. The crowd means it's going to be hard and difficult to get to where I want to go. And here, the crowd does that very thing. It appears to be slowing down. But time is of the essence. We, we want to just kind of stop and feel this. There is an urgency to what's going on. There is an urgency. Death's knocking about to take his daughter. We don't know. Maybe this is his only daughter. Maybe this is his only child. So there's, there's a sense of panic. There's a sense of urgency. Every second in this moment counts. It very well could be that Jairus is thinking it, maybe it's too maybe it's gonna be too late by the time we even get there. And then there's an interruption. There's an interruption. And there's a woman, verse 25, who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments, his garment. So now we meet our second character. This is, this is a woman. And notice here, in contrast to our religious leader, she's, she's female, which would have been maybe a little bit lower on the totem pole here in this culture. She's far from being in good standing. And we get this, this information about her, this disease, a condition she has. She is experiencing a discharge of blood, some sort of hemorrhaging caused by a disease that has left her in a horrific situation, having a flow of blood, having suffered from doctors, having sought medical intervention, but only 
through that, it was getting worse. She's exhausted all her wealth and all her money. This woman is destitute. This woman is desperate. And it gets worse than just that she had a physical condition. She has a fractured condition physically, but she, is a, she has a fractured situation within the society, within her community. We could say she's, she's probably socially dead. According to the Torah and the Levitical law, you could find this in Leviticus 15 in the Old Testament, it specified that a woman were, would be ceremonial unclean from seven days after her monthly period. Now, if someone contacted her or she touched somebody, they were made unclean during that time. Now, there were purification steps that could be done to, to be restored, but if you were unclean, that means you were, you were on the outside of the community. Worship was, was a separation for you. This is a time where being near God is not really in view. To even think about coming some, near someone or something holy would be, be far from anything you would attempt to do. And here is this woman. Not just, not just seven days, not just 12 days or 12 weeks, 12 12 years she has lived with this condition. Just need to kind of let that sit in on us. Imagine you not being able to attend church, be a part of the community that you would love, and you just felt actually ousted and rejected from them for 12 years. No community. It's possible she had no husband. She probably was not able to bear children. Alone outcast, unclean. And part of this is she, she didn't bring upon this, this upon herself. This came upon her, this disease. She didn't ask for this, but it was something she had to live with. Now remember, she could not touch anyone, anything without making that thing unclean. Yet there was a faith in her that knew if she could just get near Jesus, if she could just touch him. In her mind, she says, if I could just actually touch part of his clothes, something could happen. We don't know what this is rooted in. Maybe there was a superstition sort of around that time. If you get in proximity with someone, there's something could happen. We see that happen with Paul and his handkerchief. But there's this belief that getting near somebody, could, something could be transferred or happen to us about our identity. And if we think about it, this really isn't too weird for us today. I mean, proximity to somebody important means something to us. I mean, that's why we like name drop when we've experienced that with somebody. When we get close to somebody, we can either find honor or we could find shame based on who we're associated with. But we want to touch somebody with honor, right? That's why we line up right near the, the hall when the athletes come running out and we just want to reach out and touch Somebody who is famous or well-known or maybe a musician, a musician, somehow by touching, shaking the hand or being in proximity with somebody with prestige or power or fame, it, it does something for us. So we want selfies with somebody that maybe is famous. Somehow we feel like we're connected to that individual by being close. We've, we've touched them. We're connected to them. And in our own life, 
it goes both negatively and positively. We've been touched by things that have brought dishonor and shame, as well as being able to touch and experience something that has brought honor. But it lasts with, it lasts with us. It stings for us. So why something like sexual abuse lingers with shame on somebody for so long, endlessly, because we've been touched in a way that is absolutely dishonorable and evil. Ed Welch, in his excellent book, Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection, I'd highly recommend that book. He says this, so the cause of shame can be from our associations or the absence of them. The cure for shame will always be found in how we become connected to God. We long to connect. We long for an association with something that makes us whole, that makes us honorable. We want to be connected to something ultimately that needs to be holy and redeeming. And ultimately, we're made to be connected to Jesus. And this is where we see the power and the glory in this woman's faith. She is desperate and she knows she's heard about Jesus and she seeks him out. If only I can get connected to him. Picking up in verse 28, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So she does. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear, trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So she found a way. She found a way pressing through the crowd. And it tells us she didn't run up to Jesus and fall before him in his face, likely because of the shame that would prevent her from doing that, particularly to a rabbi or a teacher. She couldn't do that. So she comes up behind him and reaches out. And remember our word immediately that we find throughout the book of Mark? Immediately, immediately, her condition is gone. 12 years of pain, gone in an instant, and she's healed of her disease. And Jesus realizes something, something, this power has come out of him. There's this Greek word dunamis, where we, get, we hear this word dynamite, where we get our word dynamite. Immediately, he feels, experiences power come from him, and he asks, who touched me? And notice, he asked, who touched me? It wasn't his garment that had the power. It was from himself. And his disciples, of course, frustrated, clueless. Jesus, what are you talking about? Like, everyone is touching you. Um, Who isn't touching you in this moment? And I think this is one of those those little moments where Mark's discipleship is a theme throughout his book, where the crowd can spectate or even be right upon Jesus and yet not connect to him, yet not perceive who he really is. We can all be crowded around Jesus and it doesn't guarantee that we are his disciples. Witnessing miracles, 
witnessing crippled, cripples being healed, a paralytic rising, demonic deliverances, and yet those do not guarantee discipleship. It doesn't mean people are coming in true faith. Yet this, this woman does. She is a picture of that. And Jesus begins to, to seek her out. He desires to do something deeper in her than just something physical. He asked, and she came trembling with fear, and she tells the whole truth. Imagine the compounding effect of all of those years of shame and isolation. She, this would be the farthest thing that she wanted to now be exposed and more shame to be heaped upon her. Will I be scolded? Will I be rebuked? Will the, the Holy One come down upon me? And Jesus does the opposite of that. He does the opposite of that. Just this tender, loving words. Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. And he says, go in peace. This is the word shalom. And be healed of your disease. This woman did not make Jesus unclean by her touch. It was just the opposite. Rather than Jesus becoming unclean by her, power came from him and made her whole. His connection, her touch of him, she was healed and restored, and he addresses her as daughter and speaks these words, shalom, which has all this gravity of wholeness, and all things have been made right with you. And the whole crowd is hearing this now. The thing that once defined her is now gone. She has this new identity because she's been connected to Jesus himself. She's been made well. She has been saved. He's showing us as Messiah that his power, his power, not rituals or some form of other form of atonement, could make her whole. It was through him. And he offers something far more than just a physical change for her. He offers her relationship. He welcomes her in. He, he wanted to see her. He wanted to know her. Commentator James Edward captures this so well. He says, she wants a cure, however, a something, whereas Jesus desires a personal counter with someone. He is not content to dispatch a miracle. He wants to encounter a person. In the kingdom of God, miracle leads to meeting. Discipleship is not simply getting our needs met. It is being in the presence of Jesus, being known by him and following him. He wants to know who touched him so he can engage her in a deeper way, a personal way, beyond just the physical desire she had. And this, this is a reality for all of us. The things that he is doing and working in us Drawing us to himself. This is what he wants. To know him relationally. So what seems to be an unplanned interruption. Jesus being stopped. Being holed up in this, this miracle that Jairus is desiring and wanting. Remember, there's another daughter in this story. And what's taking place. And in the midst of Jesus speaking. Someone from Jairus' home runs up and tells him. The bad news, verse 35, your daughter is dead. 
Your daughter's dead, Jairus. Why trouble this teacher any further? Just sit with that for a moment, what Jairus would be experiencing. It's too late. It's too late. Your daughter is dead. Don't bother Jesus anymore. It's, it's done. There's no more hope. It's no good for you to even continue down this way. If we were watching a show, this would be sort of that climactic music moment, tight shot on Jairus, and then you've got to wait till next week to catch the, the, new, the next episode and figure out what happened. There's a pause here. We should feel that. This is one of Mark's little sandwiches that he's doing. He's allowing us to feel something right here with this woman so that we can understand more of what Jairus even needs to experience. So consider what he felt in this moment. Minutes ago, they were on their way. Jesus of Nazareth, this, is he the Messiah? We know he heals. We know he has power. And they're on their way, and this woman interrupts the miracle. Maybe she's causal to it not actually being able to happen. And Jesus, stopping for this woman, appears at this point a horrific and horrible miscalculation. Tim Keller in his commentary, he just helpful, helpfully illustrates this. He says, imagine us in an emergency room at this point, and there's a doctor, and two very severe cases come into the emergency room, and we have this struggling woman with the disease, but for the most part, she's stable, and then we have a child who's on death's door, and then he chooses to take care of the woman, and the child dies. This, this is a lawsuit for this doctor. This is malpractice. This doesn't make sense, Jesus. Why, why did you stop? But Jesus is not in a hurry in this moment. He's in control. He is the son of God. He's not unsympathetic to Jairus' doubts and his pains, though. He overhears this and he turns to Jairus and he says to him, do not fear, only believe. Don't be afraid, Jairus, believe, trust, trust me. Notice how he cuts off this despairing conversation. Your translation in your Bible might actually say, ignoring them, Jesus spoke. He wants his voice to shape what Jairus feels and what he should do. I think this is an important reminder for us in times of crisis when we do not know what is up or down, the bottom falls out. We need Jesus' voice in that moment speaking to us because there's a bunch of other voices that come at us at that time. His word will be the main thing that's gonna be able to sort things out for us that will be comfort for us in that moment of loss. And I think it's an encouragement for us as a church that we become those who grow in wisdom and care for others when they are in those moments, that, that our voice would sound like Jesus' voice, bringing comfort, bringing his word. And when we are in those situations, we're sure to surround ourselves with the people who sound like Jesus in those times. We pick up in verse 37. And he, Jesus, allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. 
And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And we had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. And he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them, that no one should know this and told them to get, give her something to eat. Jesus had a plan all along. Jesus was in control all along. It seemed that Jesus' timing was all off with this woman's situation in our natural and limited vision we think that God is neglecting or ignoring or worse, harming. And yet all of this was rooted in Jesus' glorious plan. Maybe even let our minds kind of go to, to Lazarus's situation. This similar effect. The, the family charges Jesus with neglect. What are you doing? If you would have just been here earlier, Jesus, this would not have happened. And what does he tell them? I am the resurrection and life. His timing is all wise. His working is all for our good. And so he encounters this commotion from this family. They're lamenting, they're wailing, they're crying out. When they're doing this because she really was dead. They wouldn't have been doing this if she wasn't really dead. She wasn't just sleeping. But according to Jesus... According to Jesus' power, in proximity to Jesus' power, when we encounter him, it's as if she was sleeping. So he shuts down the laughter, and he goes in, in his power, to this little girl. Jesus has encountered Satan and demons, a paralytic, storms in nature, and now we will see Jesus we see Jesus now, the Son of God, has power over death, the last enemy. And he draws near the girl and he takes her hand. You just picture this very tender moment by her bedside. Talitha kumi, it's, this is Aramaic. And this is likely what the disciples and Jesus spoke. It was the common language. And this was just like a simple, everyday sort of statement, like a parent would speak to her, a child Hey, honey, little girl, time to get up. Time to wake up. I have memories of my dad when I was young, like high school years. And I don't know if your high school kids have alarms or you have to go in there and wake them up. I don't know what that is. I think that's still a case in my house. But it's time for school. My dad, in contrast maybe to my mom, who's a little bit more abrasive in getting me up, my dad would sit by my bed and he would kind of rub my back and He'd say, hey, buddy, time to wake up. You know, I had friends that would, like, rip blankets off them and, you know, flip the lights on. This was gentle. This was, this was a kind movement. A, and yet, it wasn't free from the absolute authoritative power of Jesus. 
But we see, much like the storm when the disciples with, with him in the boat, he didn't, have to, he didn't have to yell. He didn't have to wave a wand. There was no incantation or conjuring. He touches her and he speaks. And she wakes up from her nap. She wakes up from death. The one who holds the universe together through the power of his word what can make us the most, the most terrible end of us or our loved one, death. In his hand, Jesus is a simple touching and waking us up from a nap. I don't know if this came to mind for those who were in this moment or some of these first readers, but 1 Kings 17 is the story of the prophet Elijah and when the widow in Zarephath had a son who died and Elijah went in and he stretched himself upon the child and he cried out to God in prayer for God to revive the child and the child life returns to the child and the mom declares, I know you are a man of God because the word is in your mouth. And here Jesus, he doesn't pray. He just says, get up. And she stood up. She stood up. And we see that something greater than Elijah is in this moment. And everyone was overcome with amazement. Remember Mark's purpose here. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? And Jesus commands him, don't tell anyone about this. And this is always very strange. We've encountered this already. Bouncing between Jesus saying, don't tell anyone. Or like we saw last week, go spread the news about who I am. I think it's because Jesus is not interested in just a display of his miracles as an end in themselves. It could be a reason why he does this now. News is spreading about him, but he doesn't want news to spread just because people want fireworks, just a sign, just something miraculous. He wants them. He, He wants their hearts. He wants us. He wants our love. He wants our trust. He wants our obedience. And being in the crowd, as we saw, just this does not make us disciples. He wants our faith, faith in him as Messiah, the son of God. And then we were given this little nugget. Jesus tells him to to get her some food, get this little girl something to eat. I don't know what meal it was. Maybe he said, get this girl some breakfast. Jesus, interestingly, had a meal with his disciples after his resurrection as well. And they clued into who he was. And they realize he is alive. He is real. This 12-year-old girl was not a, a, a ghost. She wasn't an imagination. She was real. Things that are dead do not eat. And she's alive. Jesus is God. And he has power over death. And we're called to have faith in him. When death is right there present for us. To trust in him. These last couple months, couple weeks, maybe for some of us, we have been touched by death, right? Right here in our small community, in very real ways. Loved ones, even spouses. My grandmother passed away just a week ago. She had been battling Alzheimer's for a couple years now, this past Week plus, she'd just been bedridden. But she knew Jesus. 
She trusted on Jesus. She's with Jesus now. She went to sleep and she woke up and she's standing with Jesus right now. In Advent, as we were reminded earlier, this coming, this arrival is a season for us to remember that death will not have the last word, church. Sickness will not have the last word. Shame will not have the last word. Jesus does. And we're going to be touched by death. We're going to be touched by pain. But dear Christian, what we have, we have hope. We have hope because we have been connected to Jesus. We've been touched by him. And though our restoration will not look full and complete here on this earth, we can walk through it with comfort knowing he's He's right with us. And knowing that his promises are true and that one day all things are going to be made right and we can hear his words coming to us again and again and we can speak these words to one another again and again. Fear not. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Look to him. He is near and we're with him as his disciples. All things are going to be made right. And God has been saying this to his people all over the centuries even through his prophets, Isaiah 41, verse 9, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Fear not, I'm with you. My hand's upon you. God is speaking here again. He's now echoing this through his ultimate prophet, his gentle promise, fear not. Trust me. Trust me. What a beautiful thing that Mark gives us here as well, that Jesus draws near to all people, and he calls all people to reach out and to touch him. Our contrast in our story, you've probably picked up on this, Jairus, leader in community, Wealthy, family, respected, the woman, nameless, impure, alone, ashamed. What they had in common is they were desperate for Jesus. They knew that Jesus was the one that they needed to find their final and true answer. And Jesus draws near to both of them. This is the picture of the kingdom of God, the welcome of the gospel. Come near. Come all. Everyone can come, every race, every gender, weak, strong, poor, the outcast, the person who thinks they've got it all together. Anyone can come to Jesus. And so maybe you are here and you feel you cannot come near. Maybe you hear those words of Jairus' family. Don't, don't bother Jesus. Jesus is too holy and you are too unrepairable or too broken to draw near to him. You're thinking it's too late, it's too bad. The sin's too contaminating. Well, just a moment ago here in Mark, Jesus told us, it is not the well that need a physician. It is the sick. And this is why I've come. He's saying, Come. He's saying, come. He, he's drawing near the most ugly thing, and that's death itself. And so sick, struggling sinner, he, you are not going to contaminate him. He is going to actually exchange that. He's going to take it all, and he's going to pour out his power and let it flow towards you. And I think it's a charge for us as a church that we would continue to be a community where people 
feel like they can access Jesus. There isn't a, a pathway. We're not a crowd trying to hinder them getting to Jesus or we're too pulled away because we think that person's too contaminated to experience him. Oftentimes, the only tangible touch, the embodied experience of Jesus that somebody's going to have is with where they experience that in community. Let's allow that to be a place right here where people can feel like they can connect to Jesus without any hindrances. Jesus welcomes all to come to him in faith. And he has power even over death. And we're seeing here is the deeper need that we need to experience is in him. I've read over this passage many times this past week or two in preparation. And, and, I, and it, it's, it gets messy when I'm having to just really intentionally look and consider this woman's condition. It's easy to kind of gloss over and kind of maybe pretty it up. But it, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. I think, why this woman? Why this issue? Why these details? This woman hemorrhaging the blood, the suffering. It's gross. It, it's sad. And scripture doesn't shy away from those things. The blood in scripture is often understood and tells us in Leviticus 17 is that which contains life. No blood, no life. And what's unique in our text here, front and center, is both blood and death. And Jesus moves towards both of those. He's bringing a connection to it. He has a relationship with both of these, an incurable disease and death's imminence. There's a foreshadowing for us of where he was going to. Jesus was on his journey to his cross, to death. He came to address and reverse this curse of of incurability, this disease of sin in our hearts that he could bring life to us and salvation to us and more than that, eternal life rather than eternal death. And at the cross, he poured out all his blood and his body was broken and he emptied himself of all his power and rights and became weak so that we could lay upon him all of our stains and weakness and struggle and death. And you know what? He didn't stay in the grave. What did he do? He got up. He got up, church. He rose so that we could experience a deeper healing in us and we could be eternally his children, sons and daughters. So that though death has a sting now, it will one day not have that anymore. First Corinthians 15 tells us he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. One day, death, no more, church. The Apostle John encountered Jesus, the risen Christ, in his glory in Revelation chapter 1. It says this in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. Fear not. I don't know what area Jesus is saying to you today. Fear not. Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So whatever circumstances you're facing today, hear Jesus saying those words to you personally, inviting you into his power and his peace and his fellowship. Fear not. Do not be afraid. 
Only believe, trust me. I'm good and I'm in control and I'm with you. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the promises that you give us, that you reveal to us in your word. These realities are not just just pages on a book that happened to somebody hundreds and thousands of years ago. Lord, these these are realities for us as your people. You speak your words to the ones here in this very room or watching or listening at home, Lord. Daughter, son, fear not. Do not be afraid. Only believe, trust me. You speak that to our hearts today by your spirit, Lord. And I, I ask that all of us would, would be able to, to move towards you and, and reach in faith to touch you today, Lord. By faith, touch you through the gospel and, and there would be comfort and rest and peace when there are circumstances that seem would just give us just the opposite. So make this a reality for us today. And I, I pray for those embedded in sorrow and grief this morning because death, death has touched them deeply recently. Or maybe it's lingering from many, many years ago. Lord, would you be comfort to them? Would you remind us in this Advent season, Lord, that, that death will not have the last word? Pain and tears will not have the last word one day we'll be no more in your coming. Amen. Amen.